Hey, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. You know, years ago, when I started out in stand-up, I used to play the improv in New York, and one of the people I would run into at the club was the late, well, supposedly late anyway, Andy Kaufman. Frank and I phoned up Andy's old partner in crime, Bob Zamuna, to get the lowdown on Andy's fascinating life and possible death. Enjoy. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. And our guest today is a writer, actor, author, and producer who has created and produced comedy specials for NBC and HBO. He's the co-founder and co-creator of Comic Relief, a charity that's raised over $80 million to help combat homelessness. And he was the wingman, comedy partner, and co-conspirator of the legendary Andy Kaufman. And probably the person who knew him best. His new book is called Andy Kaufman, The Truth Finally. Welcome to the show, Bob Zamuda. Thank you, Gilbert. Thank you very much. Welcome, hey, and Bob. Also, thank you. I, you. You did one of our comic reliefs for us many years ago uh, with, uh, I think, Richard Belzer. Uh, yes. Yeah, we were. We were Dick and Stinky. Yeah, you were. Where? Yeah, you were the ventriloquist <laughs> dummy. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember Dick and Stinky. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, yes. that? Yes. <laughs> it was. It's, it was. I remember it being. Oh, go ahead, Bob. Were you? you you said, I, if you rec- I recall, it was just like a ventriloquist act. Belzer came out, he was the ventriloquist, and you sat on his lap. And they drew the lines coming down from, your, from, from the either side of your chin. And, and Gilbert looked so, I got to tell you, he looked so much like a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> they they, they kind of had that red makeup on you, you had a little bow tie, you know. <laughs> Is yeah, there, is, we, it was it was so great. People said, you know, Belzer and Gilbert should go on the road doing this. This is fucking hysterical, you know. Yeah, because it it started out by me and Richard, just like we used to joke around, right? As Dick and Stinky, and it was a lot more obscene. Right, because this was on ABC, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was a little harder because he would go, "Hey, uh, hey there, Stinky!" Uh, and I'll go fuck yourself. Why don't you suck my dick? <laughs> it's a little like Otto and George. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and this was the early years at, at Bud Freeman's Improv and Rick Newman's Catch a Rising Star, right? Oh yes, yes. You started what year? Seventy four. Uh, no, no. I started I when I first started doing comedy, I think yeah. it was like the end of the I was fifteen. Holy so shit. Yes. Fifteen. And, and I think it was like may have been sixty nine or something. Oh wow. So you were there because I got there with Albrecht, Chris Albrecht, him and I had a comedy team at and I came in there around seventy four at the improv. So you that's right, you were already doing it. Yeah. Now tell us wow. a, tell us a little bit about Albrecht and Zamuda, Bob, comedy from A to Z. 
for people well, who don't Isaac know. Well, Chris, and, and you know Chris, and Chris is sure. a big yes. show now. And Chris uh, uh, was, uh, was just another actor. I went to Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, Chris went to Hofstra. We met in summer stock. We did some summer stock. And after that summer, it was about 1973 or 72, we decided that we, you know, we wanted to become stars. So we should either go to Hollywood <laughs> or, or New York City. Yeah. So we went to New York City, and we roomed together and just, just starved. Had a great time because, you know, Gilbert, back then, who cared? It was a lot of fun. You know, yeah. and nobody really thought that anybody's career would really hit. Everybody was doing it because I guess none of us could like think of any other jobs to have. I would imagine, you know, that that was basically it. It was yeah. like, and, and the, when I started, I walked in the improv with him and it was and, and talk about cheese, you know, walking in the right place at the right time. It was well, it was Richard Belzer. It was you. It was Richard Lewis, Elaine Boozler. Larry David, Jay Leno, Andy Kaufman, and uh, what happened with Albrecht is that Chris, Bud was Bud Freeman, who owned the club, was going through a nasty divorce with his wife, Silver. And uh, he was going to open a club on the West Coast, and he thought, because Silver, as you know, Gilbert, she liked to give notes to the comics. Oh, and yes. They didn't, and they didn't <laughs> I must like love that. <laughs> they didn't like that at all, you know. Nice lady, but they didn't like it. So Bud figured, oh, my God, if this keeps on, none of the cops, they're going to desert the improv, and none of, he'll never be able to get them to come to the West Coast. So he took Chris Albrecht, because Chris was probably back then doing a lot of coke with these guys, and he made Chris the night manager of the improv. Now, what's extraordinary about that, so then all of a sudden when the, when the comedy boom started taking off, and, uh, and, and what happened is that, is that uh, the agents in New York, in L.A., said, hey, this comedy thing has taken off. You know, Freddie Prince, Jimmy Walker, Gabe Kaplan, everybody was getting their own TV show. So they said, hey, we got to find out who these young comics are and sign them up. And everybody said, we, we don't know who they are. Who would know? Well, who would know better than Chris Albrecht, who's managing the improv? So they tap Chris on, ICM comes and taps Chris on the shoulder and says, how would you like to be an agent? Chris, Chris is a nightclub owner, you know, you know and, 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 and at the improv. He says, sure, he comes to the West Coast, and within six months, Chris becomes one of the super agents in Hollywood because he signs up Whoopi, he signs up, uh, I think, uh, Chris Rock, Billy Crystal, because all these dudes knew him. And then, uh, what? Maybe a year after that, uh, you you remember the names Gilbert, uh, uh, Bridget Potter, and uh, over at, at HBO. And she decided that they needed to to rebrand HBO before before Albrecht got there. It was just the boxing with Don King. Remember that? Oh that, yeah, that's what HBO was all about. I remember it, when HBO. Yeah. <clears throat> was like 70% of it, it was a weird kind of uh, great station to jerk off to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they had it, it, it was called like something like um, isometrics or, uh, <laughs> or flexibility. or they, they had these clips. It was like almost 24 hours of girls in spandex. 
doing exercising. Yes, yeah. yes, aerobicize, aerobicize, and that was the big thing back then. And the camera would follow them, and it would, you know, narrow in on their asses and crotches <laughs> and tits. And that was ninety percent of HBO. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and boxing. Yes. And that's what, then they brought Don King in, and then they brought Albrecht, and they branded it comedy. And then he, the, within six months of having that job, you know, he called me up, you know, his ex-comedy team partner, and he said, you know, him and I had a comedy team at the Improv, and he said, Zamuda, you have any ideas? Uh, he says, I, I'm, I'm now a programmer. I'm not even sure what the fuck programming is. And so that was the official end of Albrecht and Zamuda. When, when, oh, yeah, when Chris... yeah. Well, kind of. No, it kind of ended at the improv. You know, he started chasing the girls, and I started writing for Andy Kaufman. When Andy got the gig on SNL, then I started writing for Andy. So I was covered. He was covered. You know. But the good thing is that Chris then. Uh, so when Chris got that job, Live Aid with Bob Geldof's Live Aid, where the music uh, community got together, and totally changed their image before Live Aid. Musicians were guys that had too much pussy, smashed up hotel rooms, took too many drugs. And it totally changed the image of what the music industry could do when they raised all that money, you know, to help the starving in Africa. So Chris had just gotten the job. I'm watching Live Aid, and I said, shit. I said, Chris, I called him up. I said, Chris, you and I know everybody in the comedy business. Because Gilbert, as you know, it's just like everybody from the improv and catch at the time. That's it, you know, and everybody was going up, coming up the ladder, and uh, I said, look, we know all these guys. We could do the live aid of comedy, and we called it Comic Relief. Uh, Robin, the dear Robin Williams was a good friend of mine, so I got him aboard, and then uh, Chris got Billy Crystal aboard through David Steinberg, and then Whoopi was brand new. She had just done The Color Purple. She didn't even know she was a star yet. And uh, I think Chris called, got to her, and she was excited that she could meet Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. And that's how Comic Relief was born. We thought we were going to do it one time, and it went on 28 years, and we raised, like you said, uh, over $80 million. It's an achievement, Bob. You, 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 uh, you deserve a lot of credit. Well, thanks to Robin, Whoopi, Billy, and Chris Albrecht, and all the other comedians like Gilbert, you know, and Richard Belzer, and as you know, every comedian out there, it's almost like you weren't in comedy unless you did a comic relief. Now, tell us how Chris Albrecht got yeah, fired from HBO. Oh, God, Gilbert. <laughs> You're bad. He's incorrigible. Maybe you should ask Tony Clifton about that. Bob, before we jump... I think Tony was dating the girl before Chris was. Okay, now... Now, we were, we were talking, Frank and I, about in, in the book, and we heard that you once showed up at the Playboy Mansion in your Tony Clifton outfit... And 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 you and all the girls thought it was Andy Kaufman. No, well, they, they thought, thought it was, was Jim Carrey. They thought it was Jim Carrey. They thought it was Jim Carrey. Right. Yeah, okay, he, so these. Here, yeah, here, go ahead. Here's what happened. <laughs> here's what happened. We were make. We were. You know, I produced me. Me and Danny DeVito produced the film Man on the Moon, which was the, the you know, the Andy Kaufman story that starred uh, Jim Carrey. 
as Andy Kopp and Paul Giamatti plays yours truly. You know, Courtney Love uh, played uh, uh, Lynn Margulies, Andy's girlfriend, good friend of mine. But she's the co-author of the book you have right there, too, Lynn. So anyway, Jim, Jim was never into Playboy much, you know, and he gets a call. Hefner had just, he, Hefner had been married, happily married for years. He had kids. He wasn't messing around with the playmates or anything. This was years ago. And his wife had it. She just didn't like living in the, the fishbowl anymore. And she asked for a divorce from Hef. Hef was crushed. The Playboy Company was happy because they wanted, you know, they wanted Hefner to go back with this, with the pipe and the, you know, and the silk pajamas and start putting on the lifestyle of an older person who could have all these hot chicks, you know, that sells the magazine and everything. So he came back, you know, when, once she left him, he put together this thing. Uh, it was one of these summer uh, sleep parties at his night. I forgot it was what it was called. Oh, Midsummer Night. Yes. Yeah. Did you go to that? I only went to one party in the history of Playboy. Yeah. Well, Jim yeah. went. He yeah. Jim went, and Jim Jim thought it was an old '60s, '70s thing. He could give a shit about Hefner, but he gets this call right when we're doing the movie. You know, I'm a Chicago boy. Where you know, where as you know, of course, Playboy started. Sure. So, so I went. Well, this is cool. He says, "No, this is lame." He says, "He doesn't want to go." And but believe me, guys, Jim doesn't need to be going to hang around. Any he's he's got so much pussy thrown at him. <laughs> it, it, it's fucking. It's ridiculous. Seriously, it's ridiculous. When we were making the movie, you certainly, know, I mean, certainly then, yeah. I mean, moms like with 15 year old daughters made up like little tramps. Oh, Jim, you know, maybe you could give it an audition. You know, they didn't care if he dicked her. You know, of course, he stayed away from all that. But anyway, so so he gets a call from Hefner himself. To, and Hefner wants Jim because Jim is the biggest star in America at the time. Twenty million dollars a movie. And he says, Jim, I'd like to invite you, you know, to to come to my 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 thing. You know, and Jim thinks about it, thinks about it, and he's, he really doesn't want to go. And I said, Jim, you got to go to this. This is too cool, man. He said, okay. And he said, oh, I got an idea. He says, I'll go as Tony Clifton. Because, he, you know, in the movie Man on the Moon, he also plays the Tony Clifton role, which is Andy Kaufman's lounge lizard character. So he calls Hefner back. He said he's going to go, but he says, he says, Mr. Hefner, he says, I'll come, but I'm going to come and care because I'm shooting a movie now. I'm coming as this Tony Clifton character, you know, Andy Kaufman's alter ego. And I'll come. I'm going to come in full makeup. But you've got to promise me you cannot tell anyone it's me or it's not going to be any fun for me. There's no sense of me doing it then. It'll be like I'm some guy in a stupid Halloween costume. And Hef, of course, promises him because he wants Jim there. Well, so we go to Jim. So, you know, a week later, Jim's in the makeup chair at his house, and they're putting the uh, prosthetic pieces on his face, jowls, nose, chin, you know, the whole deal, wig, to make him look like Clifton. And I check my messages at home. You know Bill Zamey, Gilbert? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Bill, Bill the writer. And Bill, you know, had written a book about Hefner. He was good friends with Hef. So there's a message on my machine at home. And this is 10 minutes before Jim's going to walk out of the house as Tony Clifton and go to this fucking party. And it's from, and it's from, uh, you know, it's from, from Zamy. And he says, Muda, hey, I hear, he says, Hefner tells me that Jim's showing up as Clifton. 
Well, when I told Jim this, he got so fucking, fuck Hefner, that son of a bitch. He's, I'm not going now. And he starts ripping off the makeup. He's really pissed. You know, and he said, oh, this is a downer. And he says, I told him not to tell. He said, I'm not going there. You know, he said, how stupid is that? And then he went, wait a second. Okay, I'm going to fuck Hefner over. He says, Hefner thinks I'm coming as Tony Clifton, meaning uh, Jim Carrey. And I said, yeah. He said, Zmuda, you do it. I said, no, 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 no. He said, come on. And it's been years since I got in the, in the, in the prosthetics. And I said, no, you got to do this. So they send me over there. I show up, okay, and Clifton is so fucking obnoxious, you know, and they told him to make it look real, there was not going to, his name was not going to be on a list to get into the place, you know, you have to talk, and so Tony's limo shows up, there's a long line of limos, Clifton gives the, his limo driver a hundred bucks to start laying on the horn, everybody, every big star should get the fuck out of the way because Clifton's there. And he starts berating the security guy, you know, you know, and telling him, you know, and, and, and they find, he finally gets in there. Hefter comes in and lets him in. And throughout the whole evening, Hefter is walking around with his arm around Tony Clifton, thinking <laughs> it's Jim. And, 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 you know, and, 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 you know, and I'm in the Clifton outfit. And I'm sitting there. And I, could, I could hear Hefner, you know, when my head's turned the other way, he's going, it's Jim Carrey, it's Jim Carrey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we had worked it out that, that at midnight, the real Jim Carrey was going to show up. And he was not going to make, and we were going to play it like he didn't know who I was. You know, he was not a part of this, you know, and and so like around midnight's coming up. And now every one of these Playboy bimbos, I mean, they're just, you know, they, they got, you know, Hefter's got all these old farts sitting around that place. You wasn't, know? wasn't Tony Curtis there? Yeah, Tony Curtis. Yeah, he was there with his wife. You know, his wife wanted to fuck Tony. And I think I think Tony <laughs> Curtis wanted to join, join in. Oh no! It, it, was, it was sick. It was so fucking sick, guys. And all these and Clifton's just blatantly asking these girls if they'll go to the grotto and 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 do anal with them. You know, and and they all think it's Jim Carrey. So yeah, of course. <laughs> Disturbing. So now it's getting closer to fucking midnight, and I know Jim's gonna be there. So I had somebody there with a camera recording all this, you know, have allowed us to do because they thought it was Jim Carrey. And uh, I said, get on the phone and tell Jim not to get here. I'm going to get my ass. I'm going to fuck so much. <laughs> <in this crowd." laughs> so so I'm there as Clifton getting blowjobs left and right. This is absolutely true. And then I go back. I'm, I'm like so wasted. I came like three times, like in an hour and a half, you know. <laughs> These are the hottest bitches in the world, you know? And Tony's, like, really just coming in their face, and it's awful, you know? With the prosthetics still on. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Right, you know, of course. They think it's, of course they of think course. it's Jim Carrey under this. And then Hefner, then Hefner's taking me around and introducing me to everyone. And who walks in but fucking Jim Carrey? Gilbert, <laughs> you should have, it was the, greatest double take you've ever seen in your life 
fucking Hefter's got his arm around me as Clifton. He looks at Jim. He looks at me. He looks back at Jim. <laughs> he looks back at me. And he says, screams, security! <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing I know, there's like five goons on me. And they pull me to the ground. <laughs> Hefner bends over me. And there's people all around. They don't know what the fuck's going on. And Hefter, I'm telling you guys, and, you're on he- and I was scared for Hefter because Hefter had a heart attack like a year and a half before, right? <laughs> this guy had turned so red, his neck, the, the vein in his neck is, you know, because my, my flight face is in the floor, you know? <laughs> and, and, and he says, he says, Hefter says to me, he says, I don't know who the fuck you are. He said, but if all these people weren't here, we'd break every bone in your fucking body. <laughs> And they take me and the, the girl who was out doing the, the, on the camera, and they take us out through the back. I thought they were going to kick the shit out of us. And then that security guy, when Tony first came in there, and Tony's calling him an asshole and everything, he's there. So I go, oh, this is curtains, you know? Yeah. But they let us out. They, let, they didn't hurt us. They let us out. And uh, then Jim and uh, Lynn and I, the, you know, who was working on camera, her and I went back to Jim's house and waited, you know, for him to return. And uh, Jim and, and Jim then said to Hef, he said, I don't know who these people are. And what not. <laughs> he kept it going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the next day, and listen, because doing comic relief, and, and Hefner has come to comic relief. So I knew it wasn't going to be long before, before Bill Zamey, filled him in and said, look, this is Bob Zmuda. And I don't want, like, Hefner to be hating me. So the next morning, because this was a Saturday night, the next Sunday morning I went to Jim's house. I said, Jim, listen, we got to get come clean with Hefner. He's going to find out anyway, and he's going to think we're both assholes for pulling. So we jumped in Jim's car. We went over to his house, and on Sunday afternoons, he always shows these movies. To You know, he has, he's, he's a big movie buff. Oh, yeah. So, so he has these, these Sunday, you know, these movies at his house. So when we, when we show up, you know, they let Jim in because it's Jim Carrey, and I walk in, and Hef has about 50 people there that are just about to sit down to watch one of, the, one of these movies. And while we walk in, we hear Hefner is telling the story of how this Tony Clifton imposter got it that, that for years that Hefner prides himself on having the greatest security ever. There's, you know, and, and that these people, whoever they were, they were brilliant. They were like the Mission Impossible squad. Now, <laughs> and then we walked in and we told them, and Jim said, you see Bob's Muda here. He was, you know, and, 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 and Jim said, you know, have, you know, you, you, I told you not to tell anybody you did. Uh, so I uh, pulled a prank on you and, and everything was great. And he gave us, and we actually have this on video. Everything I just described was on video, me being thrown to the ground and everything else. Anyway, now, so that's the uh, Tony I, Clifton story. I'm curious, yeah. with the Playboy bunnies, did did they feel like they had been raped because they were blowing the wrong guy? Oh, well, th- this is funny, because when I went in the next day on Sunday, <laughs> the one that Tony had shot his wad all over her face in the bathroom... <laughs> When I walked in the next day, she was there. When Bob Zmuda walked in the next oh, day, she, she came. Was she there. came on Sunday and for it, the screening. And it looked like she had been scrubbing her face. 
fucking nice to get, you know, my cum off it. Because she felt it was Jim Carrey's cum. Yeah. Would have been fine. Not, not this... <laughs> A not totally louster. Yeah, yeah. Un, unknown cum, non-stardom cum. You don't want on your face or you in your ass. Celebrity cum. <laughs> totally different. Totally different. Good for the skin. Were, were they screaming rape when they no, found? No, him? no, no. They didn't know. They didn't figure this out till the next day. You know. Oh. You know. Oh my you know, god. The they didn't know. A, a fucking unknown came in my face. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Bob, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about Man on the Moon, but let's let's go back to the improv for a second and, and talk about how you you first met Andy, how he first yeah. came came into your orbit. Well, it was around 1973, 74. Uh, like I said, I was a struggling actor in New York, and I knew nothing about you. Know, and, and as Gilbert knows, you know now there's like what twenty comedy clubs in every fucking city. Oh yeah. Back then, it was what? The Improv and Catch. And that was it. Was the comic strip around back then? Nope, nope, oh, okay. nope. Okay. Yeah, they, they were yeah. the last, and what's so strange is yeah. they're the only ones standing now. Who is? Of the three, of the three big clubs. Yeah. Comic strip was like the last kid on the block. Right. And Improv's gone and Catch is gone. Yes, yeah. And so it's amazing. But at the time, the, the improv, which was the granddaddy, even a little before Catch, before Rick Newman's sketch. So anyway, this was in Hell's Kitchen, as you know, the worst part of town there. And and I walk into this place, and I, I knew nothing, never been in a comedy club. It was the only comedy club. And I walk in, and and it was very interesting. Is You know, the lineup was going on. I forgot. I think Larry David might have been on the show, Jay Leno. Everybody a fucking unknown. Nobody had two nickels to rub together. And this guy, guy walks in with this suitcase. Thank you very much. And he's talking to Bud Freeman, who was the owner. And at the old improv, you had to sit in the bar area, you know, and wait till the other room was emptied out, the showroom, and then you went in. So you waited for one crowd to leave, and then they'd clean up the tables. And, uh, so, the, and so Andy was very clever at you know, he, he's the master, and we'll get into this. He's the master of the put-on, of the hoax, of the humbug. And so he would come in in character, and he would talk to Bud Freeman, and he'd say, I'd be, I just come off the bus. I want to be stand-up comic. Can you please put me on? And, and he didn't do it in a very loud, presentational way. And what he was doing is, is he was, he was kind of conditioning us, the audience, while we were waiting in this room, we thought the guy was real. And Bud would say to him, Bud would kind of hush his voice, but, you know, it was a small room, so you would hear all this. And he'd say, you know, uh, you know he, said, he said, what's your name? My name, Andy. He said, well, Andy, you're a very nice man, but I have auditions. It's the third week, Monday of every month. And, and, and why don't you, no, please, can I please, I just come. He said, no, I can't do that. You come back in a couple weeks. Well, I'll be happy to, we have audition night. So the show goes on, and you forget about this guy. And then at the end, because nobody would follow Kaufman. You know, the, room, the rule was Kaufman would destroy the room, and it, what, what he did was so bizarre, you know, and fucked up the audience so much, nobody would follow Kaufman. So, so Bud would always put him on at the end. 
and he would say, ladies and gentlemen, Bud said, that's the end of our show. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you were here, uh, you know, a couple hours ago, but a young man walked in off the street, you know, and I never do this, but I'm, you know, I don't know what he does, but he seems real nice. And, and please don't do this. We have auditions every, you know, three weeks. But I'm going to put him on tonight. And his, all I know, I don't know what he does. Uh, uh, his, his name is Mr. Andy. And Kaufman goes up. This is the first time I see him. And Kaufman goes up. And the original act, uh, you know, was that Latka, he called it the foreign man character. Thank you very much. And he's an impressionist. And he's terrible. He's doing like, I'd like to do the Ronald Reagan. Hello, <laughs> he's Ronald Reagan. And the voice doesn't change yeah. at all. He did Archie Bunker. and Yeah, he did yeah. Archie Bunker. Did you Arch- meet you him, meet get him. out of me, bad. Right. You think bad. You know, it's just terrible. So you're sitting there laughing. But he's so excited because you believe it's the first time this guy's been on stage. And he's so excited that he's getting laughs. And then, so you're laughing more because you go, oh, this bozo, he has no, this is, this ain't going to go anywhere. It's just bad, but it's so bad you're laughing. And then he realizes that you're not laughing with him, you're laughing at him. And he has a total meltdown on stage, and he starts crying for real. And you feel so bad, which only gets you to laugh more. And now the girls who are on dates are, are, are you know, shoving their boyfriends and say, if you, don't, if you don't quit laughing at him, I'm never going to go out with you again. And the place, and a guy, I'll never forget this, because Bud's in the back. Bud had that little control booth there. Not a booth. You know, he had that, that sound machine there, you know, for the mics and lights. And... So I, I saw a guy get up and go back to Bud because I'm sitting down in the end of the room. He said, he said, Mr. Freeman, he said, you, he said, he said, you never should have put this guy on stage. This poor guy is going to kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> and then, all, you know, Bud's sitting there, and it was such a heavy psychodrama, and you felt, but you had a laugh, you know, and he's crying, and, and, and it's awful. And then all of a sudden, he said, I'd like to do one last impression. The Elvis Presley. And you go, oh my God! And then a strange thing happens. And you go, but you remember this? Oh yeah. All of a sudden, there's a music cue from 2001 because that's what Elvis would use when he would come out on stage. Oh yeah. And the lights started. The few lights that they had hanging with with colored gels in it, they start changing in relationship to this music. I'm, you're going, wait a second. What's all this production value all of a sudden? Kaufman turns around, and then Kaufman turns around, he combs his hair, he puts on an Elvis jacket, he strings a guitar around his neck, and he turns around, and he does, for the next three minutes, a drop-fucking-dead Elvis Presley impression. And, you know, Elvis, at the end, at the end, he goes, thank you very much. And then after the thank you very much, he goes, Thank you very much. And he becomes an idiotic character again. <laughs> and everybody is scratching their fucking head. Standing ovation. You know you've been had. But I now am out of my fucking mind. I'm going, I am, is this guy this foreign freak who just does this great Elvis impression? Is the whole thing a put on? So I wait till the place empties out. Half hour later, I'm having a few drinks at the bar, and you know everybody's leaving. And then Coffin, I found out he had his dad's car out there because then he would run over 
to the fucking catch a rising star and do the same fucking show. So he had all these props. And back then he had congas, he had puppets. He had this 16 millimeter movie projector. I mean, the old type, this is like 180 pounds, you know, and he's fucking, you know, and, and, and he sees me standing out there and he looks at me and he could see, I want to talk to him. And he's got all these fucking props. And he says to me, can you help me? I have bad back. Oh, so he's still in character. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I think the guy's, I don't know. What the fuck's going on? So no sooner for another 20 minutes, I'm loading all this shit into the trunk of his car. My back begins to hurt me. Finally, everything is in there. He comes, he closes the trunk. Andy Kaufman looks at me. It's the first time he, you know, looks at me. He goes, he says, thank you very much, sucker. <laughs> and he gets in the car and pulls away. That was the first time I met Andy Kaufman. And, and then about six months later, we became very fast friends. And then I was his writer for 10 years. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Did, was he doing the Mighty Mouse bit then? Oh, yeah. Back that, then? Oh, yeah. Bob? That was probably the first thing he did on SNL. That, that got him the job. And I, I saw, slightly off the subject, but I saw an interview with Chris, and he's, Chris Albrecht, and he's talking about, and I never knew this, that, that Chris hosted a children's cabaret at the Improv on the weekends that Andy headlined. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He would do the well, same act for kids? Well, well, guys, here's the crazy part where this all came from. Oh, no, it makes a lot of sense. Andy Kaufman went to a, a college uh, in Boston called Graham Junior College. There was a shit college that doesn't even exist anymore. It was the only college that he could get into. He had very bad grades. But he wanted to be like, like uh, he wanted to be a child performer. He wanted to have a TV show kind of like Buffalo Bob and Howdy Doody, mm-hmm. you know? And so he did when he was uh, when he was a little kid when he was about ten eleven years old. He put up signs in Great Neck, uh, children's performer for their birthday parties, and he would come in and you know, they pay him ten fifteen bucks you know for a kid's birthday party. He would not let any adults in the room with the kids, just him and the kids, and he would sing Mighty Mouse songs and you know uh, you know uh, Pop Goes the Re- we- Weasel and. And, and do with puppets and magic. And it was all this childlike stuff. Well, cut, cut, cut later on now, he's in Graham Junior College. Okay, he's 19 years old, 20 years old. And he's in the student union. And, there's, and Andy was always a skirt chaser. And there's a hot chick who was, who, and she was supposed to book the show uh, the next night uh, for the student union. And she didn't have any acts. So she's actually running around the cafeteria asking everybody if there's anything they know how to do that she could put them on stage tomorrow night at the coffee house at the school. And uh, she comes up to Andy, and Andy realizes he's hot, so he wants to talk to her. And she says, no, no. And she's, oh, really? He says, well, I did a kid's act when I was 11 years old. Remember, he's 20 now. She says, do that. He says, well, no, it's like these, it's like kids songs. She says, please, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I got a book. Can you please do it? He says, well, and he wants to lay her, says, okay. And he goes that the next night, and he does the same freaking act he did for these, these you know, eight, nine-year-olds when he was like 11. Amazing. And everybody, and t- the juxtaposition of that childlike material for adults 
that became the act we know as Andy Kaufman. Isn't that wild? Yeah. If that girl had never come up to him, Gilbert, you never would have heard of Andy Kaufman, ever. Wow. And then when he, that's why, so when he auditioned, when he, I have his first audition tape from SNL, the audition tape, because I have a, a lot of his stuff. What did he audition and with? Because I remember he, him doing Mighty Mouse he, the he first time. He did Mighty Mouse, and he did Pop Goes the Weasel. Right. right. It was the idea, once again, of taking this childlike material in front of sophisticated adults, and that's what did it. That was the lightning in the bottle. And then we realized that for a while, when he first started, for a long time, him, his manager, George Shapiro, and myself, we contemplated for a while, should he ever use his real voice? Okay? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. Should he ever use his real voice, or should it always be, thank you, that, that foreign man voice? And he, uh, and matter of fact, the few first times he did Johnny Carson, he stayed in character, and and Johnny loved it because Johnny because that was like you know Johnny loved if you had like a weirdo like Timey Tim or Chero you know oh yeah he was always good with those people yeah the act worked itself because Johnny could just, they would say something and Johnny just would do those 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 takes to the audience or Carol Wayne Any, yeah anybody exactly. who stayed in so character that, like so that. that was great with, with you know but then Andy decided. Because he had a whole box of other characters he wanted to do. He wanted to do the bad guy wrestler. He, you know, he wanted to do Tony Clifton. And basically, he said to himself, he said to me one day, "If I keep this character going, I'll never get laid." <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Don't think I'm a goof like Tiny Tim. I'll never get fucking any pussy." That's funny. And that was it. So he then then did it. Now, what's interesting, when he then went back on Carson and dropped the character and did his own voice, Johnny didn't like it. Johnny got, was very uncomfortable. The dynamic that he thought he had going with Kaufman didn't work anymore. And from that day on, uh, uh, Andy was never on. They put him on The Tonight Show when somebody else would be hosting, Steve Allen or Steve Martin, but never again with Johnny. Didn't know that. Yeah. Now, uh, I heard that he started that whole wrestling thing just as uh, basically to get some physical contact with women. Didn't he like? <laughs> did, yeah, yeah. It was, didn't he like tall, no. muscular women, Bob? Yes. This is you are Gilbert. You've done your homework. This yeah. is absolutely true. It started like this. His birthday was coming up, okay? He was already on SNL, you know, he was, you know, and he was making good money. He was touring the country. And I figured, okay, now I'm his writer. I got to get him something nice. But Andy wasn't really into money and shit. So I, I figured I got to come up with a clever birthday present. And one day I go over to his house and all the, the, the shades are down low. I, I see his car in front of the house. So I know he's in there. And I'm knocking on the door, you know, and he's not answering. I don't know what the fuck's going on here. And, uh, and Andy, I know you're Bob. It's Bob. Bob, I, let me, you know, what's going on? And so he, he opens the door. He, has a, he opens the door to crack, and he's in this fucking sweat. I said, what's going on? And I said, you with somebody? He said, no, no. He says, okay, 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 come on in. He shows me. He's got, it's dark as hell in the place. He's got, 
This is before they're like porn videos and stuff, you know, before the videos. He has this stupid little eight millimeter little thing that's like it's like attached to a flashlight. It's with a battery and you turn it on and there's there's a little like porno thing going on it. You put your eye in this thing. This is very early, you know. I think Gilbert had one. Gilbert, you have you have that, don't you? He has a look of familiarity on his on his face here. <laughs> But so, the recognition. Gilbert, so get this. So, so I'm going, what? The? He says, well, I don't never show this to anybody. But I, he says, oh, you got to see this. So I look in this. I know it's some kind of porno. I'm going, what the fuck is this? Is it farm animals? What the fuck? You know? And I look in there, and it's two girls wrestling, but like they got like bikinis on. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's such, a, he's such a, a, a guilty Jewish boy. <laughs> He's got like chairs piled up that somebody's going to come in and catch him doing this. It's, it was so ridiculous, you know. And I'm going, yeah, yeah. He's like, isn't that unbelievable? I said, yeah. He's, oh man. And there was one girl named Marilyn Rubin that we knew. She was a beauty. She was a, an actress, unknown. And there was this other girl. He said, oh, could you imagine those two in bikinis wrestling? You know. And I realized, pop in my brain, I go, ah, this is going to be my birthday present to him. So like a few months later, it's his birthday. His parents are there, his brother and sister at his house. There's about 40 people. And I come out in a referee outfit. And I have this wrestling mat down. He's looking. I said, Andy, this, I think, what could I get you for your birthday? And I convinced these two girls who knew Andy. They wanted to get him something for his birthday. I said, look, will you girls wrestle in bikinis for him? You know? <laughs> and that was it. That was the first time we did it. And he got so excited, and the girl, I well, Marilyn, sorry, Marilyn, because people are going to hear this, but that night he fucked Marilyn Rubin, you know, because Andy was very shy, but he figured once you could wrestle a girl, you've broken down the, phys- the physical distance. <laughs> you know, and, and, now, you remember when, when we were considered this. Remember when you were a teenager, you go to the movie theater and, you know, you, you never, you know, and you put the, your arm around the girl, like for the whole fucking movie, your arms aching, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you hope, you know, and it, but so he figured, no, if he could wrestle a girl, he could break that down and he could then get the third base. Because he's you know? already groped her. Yeah. The entire time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She's, he's he's already half naked. Yeah. And so he's anyway, groping her. This thing takes off, and we decided to start putting this in our road show because we played colleges. You know, we did. We were on the college circuit, so we figured, well, this. And I produced all his shows, and I figured, okay, well, Andy, let's do. Let's separate the men, the, the men from the women at the college shows. So when you bought bought a ticket for for an Andy Kaufman show, and you went into the auditorium to see him perform, we had the the girls on one side and the boys on the other. You know. And then he would start this whole thing about how he could beat any woman in wrestling. And then I would always come out in the shows. I, we had about 500 bucks. If a girl could pin him, she'd get $500. And it became a big part <laughs> of the fucking show. You know, the schools would advertise that the girls would show up in leotards. And it was always, and then, you know, we'd select, we'd have the audience, you know, the girls would come up on stage and I'd put my hand over their head as to who they would select. So everybody knew this wasn't rigged by the applause in the audience, you know, and they would always pick that. We'd always get down to two girls. First of all, of course, the sexiest one, 
because all the guys will want to see her, you know, get wrestled, you know. And then, of course, the biggest fucking ugliest pig girl on campus <laughs> that looked like, you know, she's bigger than a guy. Well, that it looked, looked like, like they, she could kill him. Kill him yeah. and throw him out of the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, soon, it wasn't long before, uh, before Andy started working on... Uh, on Dick Ebers on, on, on Lorne Michaels on Dick Ebers because Dick was, at the time was then producing SNL because that was that little while when Lorne left and then he came back. So Ebersol's director. Oh yeah, G- uh, Gilbert for, knows something about that oh, period. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so he comes on. So so Ebersol gets on the show, and and Andy finally convinces him to do the the wrestling. You know, to do the wrestling. And uh, so now we're on national TV, and, and SNL had girls, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and th- so the first time he did it on SNL, there was a hot girl that came out of the audience, you know. And, and now remember, guys, I'm always the referee for these things. So here we are live on SNL, going out to millions of people, and he's wrestling the hell out of this girl. She's hot as all hell. But I'm the only one who's down on the mat, and this is what I hear him saying to the girl. Oh, baby, you are so hot. We are on national TV right now. He said, you come back to the dressing room afterwards. We've got to get to it. She said, you're a pig. Shut up. Shut up. You know? <laughs> and I'm listening to all this shit. But nine times, and we did this, and the same thing would happen across the college. And we did this. We had probably about 300 wrestling matches. And I am not lying. Andy Kaufman betted about 80% of those girls. Incredible. Even, yeah. They said, oh, we'll just come back and, you know, and Zmuda, talk to Zmuda. He'll get you backstage. You know, and they just, they, first of all, they had the time of their lives. They're being cheered on stage. He has broken down the physical armor between both of them and it, it was really incredible so I, that's how it started I now he the, would get so aroused i was scared <laughs> on snl it was terrible that i would i he would put on a jock strap in the dressing room this is true before snl and then i would take a whole roll of fucking gaffer's tape and we would i would wrap it around his dick and balls and tie him down <laughs> I swear to you, and that's why then he would put on uh, a swimming trunks, these boxer swimming trunks, and, and, and remember, no, then he put on his you know, like these long johns when he wrestled. Yeah. It wow. was so ludicrous, and this was all down because I thought he was going to pitch a tent on national TV. I prep for every one of these podcasts the same way, Bob, with Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> we keep, keep duct tape handy. And, and Gilbert's wrapped right now, huh? He is. And, and I've just decided to add wrestling to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what took so long. Hey, hey, hey guys, what, what were you hinting about? Something about SNL or Dick Eppersall? What was that all about? I, I was on SNL right after Lon Michaels. He was on the Gene Dumanian uh, oh. era. Yes. The, 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 oh, bet- oh, boy. Between yeah. Lorne and Eppersall. You saw the politics beneath it all oh yeah yeah it wasn't nice <laughs> it wasn't nice no and and dick ebersole i i remember dick ebersole came in gee uh this is how this is so funny i remember sitting in an office with eddie murphy and it was just some empty office it wasn't yeah, hard. yeah. and and the somebody goes pick up a uh, line two uh, Eddie, someone wants to talk to you. And he goes, oh, okay. 
And he picks up the phone. He goes, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, 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 I won't tell anyone. No, no, it's a secret. I won't. And before he even hangs up the phone, he, he turns to me and goes, Gene Domanian's just been fired. Oh. <laughs> and, and, the and, EP. Yes. And he's yeah. not going to tell anyone. Yes. Right. And then uh, she has a meeting to tell everyone to announce she's been fired. And by then, everybody knows. (laughs) And everyone's kind of like looking at the ceiling and at their shoes. And and, uh, and then it's someone's birthday. And they bring out a birthday cake. (laughs) And they're singing happy birthday. (laughs) The timing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and then... uh, Dick Ebersole comes in a few days later, announces, I'm the new producer. I'll make some minor changes. Uh-huh. And uh, and we came back the next day. Each of us are waiting one by one outside his office. I pick up a fan letter from the desk that's addressed to me from some girl in Indiana. And she goes, Dear Gilbert, I'm so sorry about what happened to you. <laughs> The girl in Indiana knew. Yeah, yeah. She think... knew before I knew. I was fired. Yeah. Incredible. Well, see what happened. Well, no, well, Ebersol was, oh, boy, don't get me started on this Ebersol. <laughs> but well, see, what happened with him was this. This, you know, because Andy was kicked off of SNL. But he was, he was voted off. This was awful. And what happened was this. Kaufman called me one day, and he said he, uh, that he, he had gotten what had happened is that the good thing about Lauren Michaels, Lauren was smart enough to realize Andy was a real artist. Just leave him alone. Just a performance artist. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to. What kind of notes am I going to give this guy other than Andy? Uh, it's too long or it's too short. Well, it's never going to be too short. It's too long. You need to cut some time out of it. That's all. That's all, you know, Lauren would do it. And remember, Lauren was actually a writer. He was a comedy writer for Smothers Brothers. Sure. You know, Lily Lauren's Tomlin. a very smart, you know, uh, sophisticated guy. Ebersol gets in there, and all of a sudden now he's going to start giving notes to Andy. This would be like telling Picasso what colors you should use, you know. It didn't go over well, so they got in a big fucking screaming match. You know, because I heard I wasn't there that day, but I heard from the from a few people who were there, and they said, "Oh no, it was off. It was big screaming match. Andy and Ebersol, top of their voices, yelling, blah blah blah." And then a couple weeks later, I get a call from Andy. He said, "Hey, listen," he said, "Here's a bit they want to do on SNL. What do you think about it?" I said, "Well, what is it?" He said, "Well, you know." Did you see this Louis the Lobster routine where they had a boiling pot of water and people would call in to vote if Louis the Lobster would live or die? And, of course, the votes – and these were real votes. This is the first time they started doing this, that people could call into a number or two separate numbers for you to live or die. And, of course, uh, Louis – they weren't going to kill the lobster, so Louis lived. Well, a couple weeks later, Ebersol has the idea – Let's do this with Andy. Let's make Andy Louis the Lobster. Not a boiling water, but, but so Ebersol comes out and says, ladies and gentlemen, there are some of you who think Andy Kaufman's a genius. There are others of us 
who believe that he's not funny anymore. But we're going to leave it to you to decide if he is kicked off the air or if he's able to come back. So Andy runs us by me. I said, well, Andy, they're going to kick you off. He said, you think so? I said, of course so. They, they saved Louis the Lobster. The next guy's going down. Just comedically, <laughs> that's how it's going to work. He, and he said, oh, okay. He said, but he said, I, I, see. I said, so if I was you, I wouldn't do this. Okay, he said, okay, well, let me think about it more. He calls me up a couple days later, said he talked to Ebersol, and that they said, he said, Bob, I'm going to do it. He says, here's why. Because Dick, I said this to Dick, I told him about our conversation, and he said, look, Andy, so they vote you off. That's okay. He says, a couple weeks later, we'll have, while the sketch is going on, you could be in the background, like sweeping up the floor or something. I said, well, that's funny. That's a great way to bring it back in, you know? So I said, yeah, well, in that case, if that's what he's going to do, fine. So Andy does the show that he has voted. I mean, he's, they take the vote. And actually, it was Eddie Murphy who, who, who was the one. I remember. You, yeah, who did this. And uh, the votes come in at the end. And, of course, he's kicked off the show. Just like, you know, and the audience at home is like thinking this is a comedy routine anyway. You know, Jesus Christ, two weeks before it was Louis the Lobster, you know. How serious is this? Ebersol will not return Kaufman's calls. He is actually kicked off the show. Now, guys, SNL was so powerful. That show at the time was so powerful. All of our dates, our booking dates across the country, dried up because of it. Wow. Andy was going to fuck it. Oh, Andy wanted to sue uh, Dick Ebersol, NBC. Oh, it got ugly. It got really fucking ugly. And 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 a matter of fact, and if you believe that Andy Kaufman died, uh, uh, his dad, uh, Stanley Kaufman, Andy's dad, went to the grave saying, saying that it was the stress of what Andy went through because of Dick Ebersol that gave him cancer and killed him. Wow. And so he, yeah. he never he never actually returned to SNL, nope. did he? No. Well, fortunately, Letterman booked Andy at the time. Well, yeah, because Letterman kept him going. loved him. Yeah. Letterman just loved him. And matter of fact, Andy would go on Letterman and then uh, explain to him what happened, you know? Because Andy, and Andy would take what really went down in his personal life, what all of us would hide, and he used that, 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 that stuff as material. So he'd go on Letterman, you know, and he said, nobody will hire me anymore, and this and that, and we put a little Vaseline underneath his nose to make it look like he was crying and <laughs> had him <laughs> Now, be- before we forget, let's get to Man on the Moon, the yes. uh, Jim Carrey movie. Yes, yes. I-, I heard originally, well, everyone was up for that part. Everybody. Yeah, what, what it was, we were surprised. It was crazy when when it was announced. Actually, when Danny DeVito announced uh, in the trades that they were moving about uh, Andy Kaufman, all of a sudden, these big stars. It, it's amazing, Gilbert, how many people wanted to play big stars. Uh, let me give you the names that called in and said, "I want would like like to play the role." It was Tom Hanks, Sean Penn, Nicolas Cage. Gary Oldman, Kevin Spacey, 
the names went on. Jim Carrey, of course. Ed Norton didn't didn't Milos Forman want Ed Norton for the for the no, part? Yes, well, yes, he wanted. Ed, yeah, Milos won, who directed the film, and you know, two-time Academy Award winner for Amadeus and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, uh, Milos wanted Norton. He had just done uh, uh, the People versus Larry Flint with Norton. Right. That Milos directed it, and Scott and Larry who wrote the screenplay for that, also wrote the screenplay for, as a matter of fact, they, for Man on the Moon. Actually, they got a movie out now called Big Eyes. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we, we, we just interviewed We just that. talked to Scott Larry oh, yeah, a couple guys, of weeks ago. Great guys, and, great and, guys. And they They're also the wrote Problem Child 1 and 2, so I yeah. know them. That, that's right, and they did, oh, they did Ed Wood, too. That's right, yes. you know. right. These guys, no, they're, not, as you know, great guys, great fucking yes. guys. And so, you know, they were kind of, you know, and, and then, of course, DeVito wanted Jim Carrey because, you know, that D- Jim was the uh, the big box office name. So they figured, you know, the film would open big with Jim, you know. And, and I it, heard Nicolas Cage was really high up in the room. I wanted Nicolas Cage. There was something about Nicolas. I'm the one. I, there was something about Nicolas Cage that reminded me of Andy. And not only that, at the time... You know, uh, Cage really had the acting chops because, you know, Man on the Moon is a serious movie. Jesus, he dies at the end. So I figured, well, Jim's funny, but, man, this is some heavy lifting here, at least as far as the drama is concerned. Could Jim Carrey pull this off? I was not assured of that at all. So I did not want Jim. Uh, And so Milos now, who is a gun-for-hire director, he didn't want to make the decision because if he did, then all these other names like Tom Hanks and Sean Penn, you know, and and, 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 and they would, you know, whoever Milos would, he'd go, they'd go, well, Milos, you didn't want me when I wanted to play Andy Kaufman, so fuck you down the road. You know, so Milos got all upset. He says, Here's what, and you know, Milos has this Czechoslovakian accent. He says, he says, this is what we do. So the, he says, look, at, let's put in the trades. Whoever wants to play Andy Kaufman must make audition tape. Because this way, a lot of these big guys, they ain't going to make audition tape. Yeah. You know, and then it, the pressure would be off them. Well, I'm, I'm going, that's a good idea, you know, because I know that, you know, and then I get the call I dreaded most. I get a call from Jim Carrey. Now Jim had done comically, so I knew Jim, but I didn't know him well. And now he's the and, this, and now he's the twenty million dollar guy. And he calls me. And remember, I went Cage. I've been talking to Nicholas Cage over the phone for like months, saying, "Don't Nick, you got the fucking role. You're the guy." As far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm not the studio, but as far as I'm concerned, you're the guy. So Jim calls me. And he says, he says, Bob, how are you? Good. And I said, he said, you know, uh, I, I really want to play this role. And I, I, I made the audition tape. And, he, and Jim is so smart, guys. He says, before I embarrass myself with Milos Foreman, can you come over to the house and see it, Bob? You know? And I said, sure. You know, and I really didn't want to see it. And I said, when? He says, could you come now? And I said, yeah, sure, Jim. And so I'm driving to this house in Bel Air, you know, and I'm going... And I'm saying to myself, now, Bob, whatever he shows you, don't say anything he could take to the bank. Don't say, that's great. Say, you know, say, hey, that's interesting. You know, don't insult him, you know. So I go over to his house, and, of course, the gates open up. He's in Bel Air, you know, incredible fucking home. And, you know, and he, he, the, the, the property is so magnificent that he actually has a, a movie theater on the property in its own fucking building. Okay, I walk in there and he's got 
in this in the, in this theater, he's got mounted on the walls behind plexiglass all the costumes from all his movies. The Riddler, Cable Guy, you know, they're all there lined up. And he has brought in a projectionist just for me, you know, and, you know, and he's going to show me this 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 audition tape he made. Didn't he make it with Judd Apatow? Huh? Didn't, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Judd, yeah. So anyway, what he and, and Judd wasn't that well known at the time, but that was his good friend. And he he brought in a candy counter uh, guy. <laughs> so this, he's got a full candy counter back there, and everything. And he comes and he takes me back in there, and he says, and 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 he says, Bob, he says, give me about ten. He says, I got about ten minutes of phone calls to make, and then I'll bring him the audition tape. But help yourself to anything you want, any popcorn, and ice cream. So I'm sitting in there and I'm jamming this shit in my pockets because I figure I'll never see Jim Carrey again. I want Nicolas Cage, you know. So I'm taking the popcorn and everything. And and meanwhile, while I'm sitting there, uh, before he comes back with the audition tape, on the big screen in the theater, he's got clips, old clips from Taxi on from Saturday Night Live, you know, you know, and, and, and it's great. And I'm sitting there and you know, I'm watching the real Andy Kopp and and then about 10 minutes later, just like you said, he shows up and uh, the, con- the candy counter person is gone and, and, and he shows up. And he's got this little brown bag and Jim and I'm alone with him in this dark little theater. And he says, OK, Bob, I'm, he says, well, here's my audition tape. And he reaches in the bag and he starts laughing like a fucking maniac and there's nothing in the bag, and he tears the bag up, and he's, I have no fucking clue what's going on. I'm thinking, maybe he's a fucking nut, you know? <laughs> Who's to say a big celebrity can't be a serial killer, you know? He's like a fucking nut. And then he says, so, what do you think of my audition tape? And he points, guys, to the big screen. And what he had done, you're right, he had gotten in hold of his buddy, Judd Apatow. They contacted Lorne Michaels. They got the drop curtain from SNL to be put on a, on a, on a truck and shipped to L.A. They set this up in a studio, and Judd shot it, and they flawlessly cut in Andy doing the Mighty Mouse routine and playing the congas. With Jim Carrey, back and forth, it was flawless. It was beyond fucking belief. And I, of course, and I got quite emotional. Remember, I want fucking Nicolas Cage. I am so taken back. He had nailed it. He goes, this just shows you how these motherfuckers work it. A guy, why he's the $20 million guy. Here he is auditioning for the role. I would find out later he took a month, he took four days every week for one month to learn how to play the congas just so he could make this fucking audition tape. Now, I I heard later on they asked Nicolas Cage if he ever sent in a tape. Well, here, let me tell you, because yeah. oh, there's a punch coming up. Yeah. So now I stop answering my phone from Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been great. He would have been great in the part, Bob. I got this girlfriend. She goes, God, it's Nick Cage calling you. Don't tell him I'm not here. Tell him I'm not here. You know, Because I now want Carrie. I'm totally sold on Carrie because I'm going, look, he, he's got the impression down. Let's start the movie with that at least, you know? 
So he was so fucking good. So anyway, at the we go to the premiere and everything, and after the premiere, uh, we had a uh, man's Chinese. They had the party afterwards. I forgot where he had the party. Anyway, so we had a big party afterwards. So I'm at the bar drinking, slugging a few drinks down. There's a tap on my shoulder. I turn around, and it's Nicolas Cage. I go, and, and I go, oh, no, 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 I'm stumbling. He said, no, Bob. He said, no, no. He was really cool. He said, no, no, no. Because remember, he had just seen the film, too. He said, I got to tell you. He says, good choice on your guy's part. He says, I couldn't have done what Jim did. And it's not like Cage was hurting for work anyway. You know what I mean? And he said, he said, no. So we started tossing back. You know, he's a big elk, you know, Cage. <laughs> so we started drinking. And then, here's the punch. And then I tell him, I finally turned, you know, it was like 10 minutes later and everything's fine. So we're goombas again. I say to him, I said, Nick, I got to ask you, why isn't it you didn't make the audition tape? Like I blamed him like he didn't make the audition tape, you know? Yeah. And he breaks into the biggest laugh. And I did not know that he was like really good friends with Jim Carrey, right? He said, oh, yeah, the audition tape. I'll tell you why I didn't make that audition tape. Because Jim Carrey called me and said, guys in our position shouldn't make audition tapes. <laughs> so you go. so Nicholas Cage was okay about the whole thing. Oh, yeah, he was fine about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was serious. He said, I couldn't have done that impression. That was that was spot on. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. And I got to tell you something. Yeah. I did a job in Reno recently. And, uh, and, and I went up to the Bunny Ranch. They're big broth. I know this because Dennis Hoff's a friend of mine. Oh yeah, and I'm the only and and I'm the only person in the history of the Bunny Ranch not to get pussy while I was out there. I know that. I was <laughs> shocked. I asked, I asked Dennis. Are you doing research? I said, what do you mean he didn't get ladies? And nope, nope, he was. You know. Well, if he would have given me a coupon, maybe, and said, uh, here, here's you for Jew, you, yeah, yeah, here's for a free blowjob, then maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the prices. So did you actually go to the facility and everything? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was some like tie-in uh, press thing between the club and the Bunny Ranch. Oh, I but see. Okay. They That's told you, yeah. me that you and Andy practically yeah. had your own bungalow there. Pretty much so. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much so. No, Andy would do a thing. Uh, well, this was so crazy. Is the first time... You know, when he played Harris in Reno, uh, and he had heard about these brothels, so we went into the uh, uh, into the Bunny Ranch. Then it was called it was called it wasn't called the Bunny Ranch at the time. Dennis added the bunny to it, but anyway. Uh, so anyway, uh, so when we walked into this brothel for the first time, they like about they had like about twenty six girls line up, you know, and it was like wow. And Andy's eyes were just about bugging out of his head, and he did not. He said he didn't want to insult any of the girls by not taking them, so he was going to take them all. Now we were playing Harris, like I said, Reno for like the, the whole week. So he had made a deal that he was going to fuck everyone before he left town. These twenty-six girls in one, in, in about five days. And right when he'd get off stage, there'd be a limo waiting for him. God bless and he'd him. He'd jump and he'd go over to the fucking bunny ranch there, 
and start nailing these girls. So he'd go in there like three, four girls a night. So it wasn't exactly the the sad, tragic life of Andy Kaufman that oh, most God, people. No. no, 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 oh no, that wasn't in the movie. No, no, no. And you know, he was probably the first celebrity that publicly came out in support of legalized prostitution. <laughs> you, you know, because he was kind of a wallflower and everything. He was kind of shy. And actually, his mom, Janice, who I was very good friends with, she was so happy that he was going to the brothel because she thought he was kind of a weird kid. And, you know, and, and she would say, oh, you know, call and say, well, where's Andy? Oh, he's off at camp. She'd call it camp. <laughs> he was relieved. Oh, he had hookers. Oh, I talk about it in the book. He had hookers left and right being flown in and everything else. Now, oh, here's, here's something I want to know. Yeah. Danny DeVito was in the movie, yeah. uh, Man on the Moon. Playing but, George Shapiro, right, yeah, manager. Right. But then they go to the set of Taxi, and it's yeah. got the whole cast, and you're sitting there the whole time going, wasn't Danny DeVito on Taxi? <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert wants to know why Danny oh, didn't do double duty, Bob. Oh, oh you picked that up, didn't yes, you? Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sharp, yeah. Yeah. We, we were wondering ourselves. It on was the set, kind of but... like if you visited the set of uh, The Odd Couple and you, there's no Jack Klugman. There, right? <laughs> well, Danza wasn't there either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well you know, listen, they thought about it and they just decided, no, that would be that if they put him in there. And then he's playing George with a mustache. That might fuck a little things surreal. up. <laughs> it might bend a few people's minds. Yeah. But a lot of people didn't mind it. You know, you're not very few people bring it up. You're one of them because yeah. obviously, you're, obviously you're a stickler for detail. You know? that. <laughs> now, you, you were played in the movie by Paul Giamatti, Bob. But Paul you... Giamatti played me. I cast Paul Giamatti to play me. Uh-huh. Universal wanted to keep me happy. So they had different actors uh, audition to play. Uh, uh, what was his name? Committed suicide. Seymour Hoffman. Oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. yeah, he made an audition tape. He played me, you know. And, and wasn't it, it, wasn't it, Garth it, Brooks considered for the part of yes, Bob's Garth, Well, I get this bizarre call at 3 a.m. on a Saturday night from Milos Foreman, who I think was stoned or something. And he calls me in the middle of the night. He says, Zamuda, I know who can play you. I go, Milos, it's three hours. What are you talking about? For the movie, who you could, who we could cast to play you. I said, who? Garth Brooks. He go, Garth Brooks? I said, Milos, Garth Brooks is a country. What? He's not even an actor. What are you talking about? And he says, no, no. He was on SN. He hosted SNL tonight. He killed. He's good. Well, of course, I got the tape. And, and, and really, I mean, he... Uh, Garth was great. He held his own with the cast. You know, he was funny and everything else. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, maybe this might work. Shit, you know. And uh, so he, now this is where it gets funny. So I said, yeah. So so we, pers- actually, I called up uh, William Morris because I thought, you know, because then the studio was going, nah, I don't know about Garth Brooks. And I figured, well, I'll get, you know, William Morris behind this maybe. So I called his agents up and I told him about the conversation. I went Milos. The next thing I know, is that Garth cancels a Friday night performance, sold-out performance, to fly to L.A. to meet Milos at the Polo Lounge, and he walks in as Tony Clifton. 
Garth Brooks. Oh, i never heard that. if you're going to play Bob Zmuda in, in Man on the Moon, you play Bob Zmuda and you play Tony Clifton because Andy handed the role, you know, to me and, you know, so he had to get that down. So he, sh- he wanted to impress Milos. He got an outfit. He got a wig. He got, you know, he did the sunglasses, the mustache. He shows up at the polo, at, at the polo lounge as Tony Clifton and has dinner with Milos. Now, here's what's funny. For some reason, William Moore, and, and I'm glad that Paul Giamatti took the um, role. Giamatti's wonderful. Yeah, better than, than Garth Brooks, I think, would have been. So, but Garth Brooks, but William Morris didn't want Garth Brooks to do it, so he didn't do it. But here's what's funny: about a year later, this is how great these these major celebrities are, and the way you know, their their business minds thinks. And I'm reading an article in Rolling Stone that Garth Brooks has a new album out, and you'll remember this, Gilbert. You'll remember yeah. this. He did an alter ego. Oh, yeah. Oh, Chris Gaines. And he had a little goat. It was called Chris something. He had a little. It was not Gaines. good. It got Chris bad Gaines. reviews. He had like a little goatee. Yeah. He yeah. had his hair different. Yeah. But here's what's so funny is that the article, the, the writer who wrote this review of this album and didn't like it, started it by saying, it looks like Garth Brooks has pulled, taken a page out of the Andy Kaufman alter ego Tony Clifton book. <laughs> and the, isn't that funny? And the guy never knew how what about the story. So here, you know, you know, here, you know, Garth figured, hey, this 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 alter ego shit, you know, I put time into it. Uh let's do it. Small world, huh? Now I remember when uh, Andy Kaufman died, I was one of those that thought, oh, is this another uh, hoax? Now, you win 85% of the country. Yeah. Now, you believe he may have faked his own death. I know he faked his death. Yeah. Oh, you're, That's you're... what my book, I know he faked his death because I helped him do it. It took about three years. And we, he had, had gotten this idea that this would be the greatest put on of all times. And he toyed with it. And he kept toying with this and, and how to do it. He would call me up. We talked about this for two and a half, three years of how to fake his death. He'd call me up and he'd say, Zmuda, he'd call me up in the middle of the night. He said, how do I get my hands on a cadaver? And I said, oh, geez. I said, Andy, well, you in medical schools, you, you know, you could get your hands on a cadaver, but there's going to be paperwork. He said, oh, I see. I said, so he, he said, well, that's not good. I said, why did you want a cadaver? He said he thought he'd like, you know, fake a car accident, fiery crash, have a body in there. And I said, and it, they, you know, it'd be Andy Kaufman. And I said, Andy, they're going to, you know, I said, they're going to check, uh, you know, dental records. He said, well, can I, he actually said, can I knock out a couple of my teeth? <laughs> and so it is. I said, no. I said, there's going to be records of your top, you have the whole jaws, you know. And so he, he toyed with this for a while, and he finally came up with the idea that he would find a somebody he, he really realized to pull this off because at the time as you know everybody was waking waiting for him to fake something nobody was going to believe he was the boy who had cried wolf too many times he had totally bamboozled the american public that he was critically that he had almost broken his neck when he wrestled the man jerry lawler oh, in yeah. Memphis. that was all bullshit he he had convinced people Gilbert, I did Tony Clifton for eight years 
I would go on Letterman. I would go on on Merv. I would do all the show, the Miss Piggy special. Dinosaur. I would go on, and they thought it was Andy Kaufman under the prosthetics. We, I kept this quiet. I, I, you know, I kept this quiet until we did the movie Man on the Moon, and then Scott and Larry put in the script. I didn't want him to. I would have gone to my grave. I would. I did Letterman three times with Tony Clifton. The last time, David turned to me during the commercial break, break and said. Andy, if I didn't know it was you, I'd swear it was somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Letterman, who likes to think he's the coolest, brightest guy in the room. Totally bamboozled, Andy would be at home laughing his ass off. So truly uh, amazing stuff. I was talking about something. I think I forgot. You were, what it was. You were talking about how how he finally came up with the the, the, the right way to pull it off, which, which according to the book, oh, oh yeah. So what he the did fake, finally, fake X rays and a body double. He, no, what he did. No, he figured the way to do it was to find somebody who was dying of cancer that was a fan of his, that was a diehard fan of his, and said, "Look, I want to pull off, and I'm with your help." pull off the ultimate hoax. He got a real guy who was dying of cancer, his same height, same color eyes, but everything else, because of prosthetics that were were used on this individual, everything else could be changed, just like me. I did, like I said, for years, I played Tony Clifton. Everybody thought it was Andy Kaufman. So he went in, he got a makeup expert to do the same thing, to ma- and then this is the guy that went to Cedar sinai Hospital, and everybody believed it was Andy Kaufman. Wow. And I talk in detail on how that in the book, as you know, of how that was pulled off. Now, so anyway, this is why I came out with this book now, is because Andy, when we had asked Andy, well, how long would he go in hiding for to pull this off? Lynn Margulies, Courtney Love played in the movie, Lynn said to Andy, and he said, she said, how long would you be gone for if you pulled the scam off? A year or two? And he laughed. He said, a year or two? He said, if I was a little boy about it, it'd be a year or two. If I was a man about it, it would be 30 years. Guys, supposedly he died in 1984. Here we are, just 2014. We're at the 30-year mark. And that's the reason I wrote the book. And I and be, only because he set gave it that time limit is the reason I came out and I'm now for the first time announcing yes he did fake his death I want him back now he may be dead let me get this straight Gilbert okay <laughs> I have not talked to Andy Kaufman I have not talked to Andy Kaufman in 30 years and for all I know he got hit by a bus last week. I don't know, but I will tell you this, guys. 30 years ago, he faked his death. So he's due. It's been 30 years. He's due. And yeah. how old would he be now if he's 64. one? 64. 64. And, and didn't, you, didn't, he, didn't he threaten uh, Bob to come back as a, as a children's clown named Zany Clowney? Well, I asked him what, what he said. He, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I asked him, well, Andy, aren't you going to miss performing and stuff? And he said, oh, I'm going to keep, keep performing. I said, well, how are you going to do that? You remember, yeah, he wanted to come back. He said, oh, he wanted to go back to his original. What he, he never really wanted to be a big celebrity Hollywood guy. The plan really was, and he thought, and he hated that when all, he had to go 
through all the stuff, all and, you know, Gilbert, you know the backstabbing and everything. You know, you know how how, how, how nasty this business can become. And what he went through with Eversol and SNL, and then he was, you know, then they, they canceled Taxi. He was kicked out of the TM movement. Oh, yeah, by the, the women. Because <laughs> he was wrestling women. Oh, and so, yeah. could I just ask you quickly? Sure. You had an old star seance yes. to get in touch with Andy. Who was there? We had a star seance over at the... Uh, that that top room in the comedy store. What's that called? Oh, the belly, belly room. Up in the belly room, because you know, Andy loved the comedy store. On uh, one of the anniversaries, May sixteenth of his death, and who was there was a uh, who was I think it was Bobcat Goldthwait. I think it was was Saget there. Bob Saget, yes, was there. I think Andy Dick was there, and a few other people. You know, uh, but, and we had, I brought in a top, a real legit top uh, seance person and said, could not make, con- they made contact with some other hey. spirit that was hanging around some uh, waitress. I like the term, a legit seance woman. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's well, like, there's, that's there's like some a, people who believe in this stuff. It's so like Andy, a totally honest con man, I found. <laughs> so Andy did not come through, Bob. He did not come through, which is further proof that he's still alive. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Now, this is strange. Gilbert's phone is, his phone yeah. is ringing. Yeah, oh. Yeah, hello. Well, shut the phone off. We're supposed yeah. to be doing this. Sorry about that. Yeah, this, this is... Yeah, this guy called... This is the third time this guy's called. What? He he says you're full of shit, and he wants to know if he could tell you on the air. I don't know if you want me to just hang up on him. Yeah, go on. Put him on. I don't give a shit. You want to put him on? I, I guess okay. if it's okay with you, because he sounds like an asshole. Okay, we'll put him on. Uh, uh, okay. okay, hang on a second, Bob. Dara, right. Dara and I will set this up. Go. Okay, okay. Go, go. put the phone by the mic. Go ahead. You're are, you ta- guys set, are you guys setting me up? You're talking to him. Oh. Hello? Hi. Wait, hello? Who's yep. that? Tony Clifton. Who do you think it is, asshole? Gilbert. Oh, we're sorry. We're sorry about this, Bob. But uh, I'll tell you one thing. No, I'll talk to him. No, I'll talk to him. You want to talk okay. to him? You, yeah, I'll talk yeah. to him. Damn right, I'll talk to you. Fucking vote up. I read your book and then read such bullshit in my life. <laughs> Tony, <laughs> Tony, but <laughs> treat our our guest with a little bit more respect than that. Yeah. Hey, hey, li- listen, Tony, Tony, Tony. T- is he, is he, I'm still. I'm listening. Listen, you you are a dumb fucking Pollock. Don't tell you that much. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I agree. I agree with Elaine Boozler, who has come out publicly. And saying that you are nothing more than a low-life fucking maggot feeding off the fucking dead body of your friend. Now, what kind of friend are you that you will write this book about him? Wow. Hey, listen. Listen, Tony. If hello, is, he, is he on? He's still there. I am on. Just yeah. fucking talk, yeah. asshole. Well, if you just calm down, I'll talk a little, okay? If you give me a chance. I will give you a chance. <laughs> Go on, speak your piece. Because I think you're the biggest piece of shit to do this. 
You wow. want this Markley? I think it went all the way to the bank, making money, coming up with these fucking phony fucking stories. And I think this goof Jew boy Gilbert here, on top of it, was putting you on the air, That's helping rough. you sell books and line your pocket over your dead bunny. Wow. Hey, Gilbert? Yeah. Um, I'm kind of surprised you would do this to me. No, he got nothing to do with it. He's a dumb fucking Jew himself. Look, uh, I, that's how it is. So, anyways, what I think, uh, I think you're full of shit. I don't think anybody should buy this fucking book. And 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 I'm just uh, telling you. Now, you know, I think often that guy is as dead as a doornail. And I don't think he was a cocksucker. Cock and I opened for him a few times, and he never tried to pinch my ass or anything backstage. And as you know, I'm, you know, back a few years ago when when he was still alive, I was quite a handsome dude. Wow, wow. Well, Tony, I don't know what oh, this is. Gilbert. Yeah, well. This is awkward. Okay, well, you know. And I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know if he wanted. And I'll tell you another thing about this movie. He's a dumb fucking Pollock. That reminds me. You hear about the Pollock whose wife had triplets? No. He went out looking for the two other guys. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Wow. Pol- Polish parachute opens on impact. <laughs> Bob, we have to apologize. We 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 figured you thank guys you, were. We figured you, you guys. Oh, wait, I got another Polish dog. Don't, don't let that dumb boy out. Every here about every Polish firing squad, they stand in a circle. <laughs> Stupid Polak. He won a gold medal in the fucking Olympics. He had it bronzed. Okay, Tony. Listen, I you know Jesus. Okay, Tony. Hey, maybe we had enough of them, Gil. You know, it's up to you. You know. Uh, well, wait, wait. Oh, don't get me off the fucking line. Hey, hear hear about the Polish lesbian. Yeah, she liked men. <laughs> Jesus, Tony, Tony. Uh, uh, okay, well, that's well, all I want to say. Okay, well, Tony, thanks for calling in. And don't buy that fucking scoundrel's book. He's a scoundrel. Elaine Bozler's right. He's a maggot living off the dead bones of his body, his friend. Tony, that makes no sense because I believe Andy Kaufman's still alive. Yeah, well, I think you're an asshole. So, so you, Tony, you think that Bob is some kind of a ghoul or something? He's a fucking, he's a fucking dumb Polak trying to make a few bucks for him fucking self. That's what it's all about. Hey, hey, what what did what, what the Polish girl do after she sucked cock? What? She spit out the feathers. <laughs> all right, Tony. Well, thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Hearing from you. Hey, wait, why you guys gotta get off the? Hello? Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, we, we, gone? We cut him off. We oh, cut, yeah. We cut him yeah, off. Yeah. He's a little over the top. Boy, Gilbert, thanks a lot. What? I, I gave you the option. Well, you, you didn't, didn't say have... it was Tony Clifton going to be on. Yeah. I Well, I uh, he's yeah, so yeah, cold. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I forgive you guys, but wow. We figured you, you, guys had a, we, you guys had a background. You had, you'd worked uh, together. What a maniac, you know? You know, because, you know, and, uh, you know, that's the real, was the real Tony Clifton. You know, he tried to show up to the Son of Man on the Moon. And, of course, Universal banned him from a lot and the whole thing, you know. He's a nut. Which brings me yeah. to a, a, yeah. a question to, to yes. start to wrap this up, Bob. I understand there's a script floating around, the Tony Clifton story. What, what, happened, yes. what happened to that project? Well, Universal owns it. Actually, uh, and, and Andy and I... Uh, started writing that back in 81. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's a little piece of fact that if people want to figure out that did Andy Kaufman, the proof that Andy Kaufman did fake his death and had thought about it three years before. 
we're working. We had a bungalow on the back lot at Universal. Uh, Kaufman uh, shows up one day. He had been up all night. He's got some papers, and he says, oh, we got to change the Tony Clifton script. I said, what, 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 why, why? He said, look, read this. And he gave me this page, and in it, he wanted in the movie, the movie is the Tony Clifton story about Tony Clifton, and in the movie, he wants Tony to die at Cedar sinai Hospital of Cancer. Guys, Andy Kaufman would die of cancer, supposedly, at Cedar sinai Hospital four years later. That is a fact that's in the script. It's in the vault at Universal Studios. We had a guy uh, from UCLA in the uh, statistics department do odds. The chance of you naming what you would die of and what hospital is something like 840,000 to one in impossibility. Now, now briefly, before yeah. we wrap up, how were the what were the memories of the taxi crew about Andy? Were they still kind of like pissed wow. off? Well, you just you, this is a good question to wrap up on because this is uh, one of the most bizarre things, uh, and I talk about it extensively in the book. Is Danny DeVito, as you know, was a member of the cast, and Danny was the one who got this movie made at Universal. You know, and he's he's the guy. He had the clout because he had done. He had done you know, Danny's a big movie producer. Yes. American public doesn't even know this. You know, he did Pulp Fiction. That was Danny DeVito. Sure. Yeah. Jersey films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and big movies. And so he got this movie made. And you know, they do what they call a electronic press kit for a film, where you sit people down and. You know, when they're making the movie for publicity. And Lynn was the one, because Lynn was a filmmaker herself, so they, they threw Lynn a few coins to do the uh, EPK, as they call it, uh, for the uh, for Man on the Moon. She came in one day to my office on the set and said, you ain't going to believe it, I just interviewed Danny DeVito. I said, yeah. And Danny was talking about Andy's funeral in Great Neck and how he was there. And I went, wait a second. I said, Danny DeVito wasn't there. Either was any of the cast members of Taxi. She says, I know. But Danny's lying on this EPK that he was there. And then it hit me. This is the reason Danny DeVito made this movie, to rewrite history. If you see movie, the movie Man on the Moon, you will see that in the funeral scene in Great Neck, not only is Danny there, but the entire cast of Taxi. And in real life, it never happened. Not only this, the day we shot that scene, and we shot most of this movie you know, on, on, on the Universal lot, you know, about 95% of it. But for some reason, on that day to shoot this, we went out, I think, to Pasadena to some cemetery that had a chapel, the whole cast went, the whole crew, about 300 extras. And I'm going, why the fuck are they spending this kind of money? We could do this on the back lot. Danny DeVito wanted to recreate and rewrite history and shoot the whole scene at the cemetery in this chapel and rewrite history because I think he was so fucking guilty that he and the cast did not show up. 
to Andy Kaufman's funeral. Guys, it gets weirder. They spent $35,000. Remember, I'm a co-executive producer on this movie, so I, I see all the invoices. They spent $35,000 with a guy making a wax reconstruction of Andy Kaufman in the casket like to look like Jim Carrey. They could have had Jim lay in there and get the shot. They didn't want it. After shooting had stopped, it was the most bizarre fucking moment of my life. I'm there with the cast and with, with, with the cast and cast members, the original cast members of Taxi, in this chapel. Danny said a few words and he went up to the casket where this thirty five thousand dollar wax figure of Andy Kaufman was in it and he said a few words this was not on camera and he closed it and they wept and I'm telling you this was the psychological imperative is why Danny DeVito made that movie fascinating oh yeah wow yeah true so anyway yes to wrap up I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we have been talking to Bob Zamuda. We want to wrap before uh, Tony calls back. Bob. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> whose new book is Andy Kaufman: The Truth Finally. And Andy, if you're out there. Yeah. Send, us, send us a sign. Or at least buy a copy of the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bob, this was informative, fascinating. Thanks for doing it. Thanks so much, guys. Thank really appreciate you, it. We appreciate Gilbert, it. If, Gilbert, if you're up in Reno anytime, you know, uh, contact. I live up in South Lake Tahoe. Oh, yeah? We'll go to the ranch together. You got okay. a coupon for him? Huh? You got a coupon for him? I got a coupon for him. <laughs> okay, I'll be there. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank, Thank you, Bob. Bye-bye.